1: I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unseated Gadigal Lands. This is a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song. It's been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. We are really privileged to honor this history of storytelling today here at FBI Radio, and I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present, and emerging. We're coming to you right now from Redfern, the birthplace of Black Theatre in this country where it is still a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations people. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colours about our race, the ways we understand and value our racial identity. I'm Sada Khan and today on the show we have Western Sydney author of The Coconut Children, Vivian FAM. She is a 19-year-old first published author as well, so we're really excited to have a big yarn to her about this really special story and where this story has come from, the hands that have held these stories before and how she's kind of communicated it onto the page in both fiction and her own lived experience so we're really excited to have a yarn with her we're joined by western sydney author of the coconut children vivian fam vivian welcome to race matters thank you for having me how are you going Ah, uh, good. Thank you. <laughs> You're good. Thank you so much for coming into the studios to yarn with us about this novel as well. So, Coconut Children is your first novel. It's inspired by stories your dad would tell you. So, tell us um, some of those stories and a bit more about them and why they why they moved you to tell these stories.
0: Um, I think growing up, uh, my dad's stories and my mom's stories were just the the things that would connect me and my sister to them. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't like get home and talk about their day that much or ask us about our day that much. It would just be like, um, they would just go really deep and dive really deep into stories about why we should be grateful for what we have because Mm -hmm. they didn't have that stuff growing up. Um, So yeah, it was just a way that we would connect to them and then how we would connect to our heritage and our ancestors because we never really knew our grandparents growing up. So it just felt like it, it connected us to something bigger than the, the house that we were living in
1: yeah that's really interesting as well because i have a similar thing with my father as mm. well exactly the same like <laughs> he didn't ask me about my day or how Mm-mm. it was it would really kind of be real minimal Mm-mm. in yeah. little like small talk he didn't know how to small talk with me no it was very much just like all or nothing you mm-hmm. just deep dive into these histories really and it's really a, a um, important part of uh, cultural safekeeping as well as uh, having that space, that safe space with, your, especially with your parents to sit and listen mm-hmm. and share stories and so um, how did that kind of resonate with you as well, growing up in this space and where you would walk outside of your front door and it's very different to what um, stories are being shared inside the home
0: mm. It always felt like almost like a responsibility that my sister and I had because we felt like the stories that my dad and my mom would tell us about their childhood and about, like, the Vietnam War and stuff, I'd never studied that in school. And, yeah, just outside of our house, it never felt like the world, out like, it felt like the stuff that they'd experienced hadn't even happened because the world seemed so unaffected by it. Yeah. So we felt like this, we felt this responsibility to know those stories and remember for them so that, and you can also tell, like, the huge weight that's on their shoulders from having lived through that. So Mm. you, as a child, you kind of want to take that burden from them and remember so that they don't have to think about it all the time. And also you feel like uh, the stuff, everything that they went through, it's almost, you don't want it to be in vain and you want to remember it so that their sacrifices live on, I guess. But also it's just, it's a good thing and it's a romantic thing, but it's also really tiring and draining to feel like you have like this whole like cultural responsibility on your back as a child.
1: Yeah, 100%, especially like it would be a form of healing for your parents as well to share them stories onto you. But Mm. then it's like, well, then how do I, how do I be a gatekeeper or safekeeper for Mm. these stories? So you were 17 when you finished the first draft of this novel, which is incredible. I definitely didn't have that kind of work ethic in me when I was 17. (laughs) Um, But do you remember what first drew you to writing as an art form?
0: As an art form, I think um, I was reading, I was watching a lot of spoken word poetry mm. uh, when I was like 13, 14, um, and it was always like uh, American, like specifically Harlem, like the the poetry that would come out of Harlem, and uh, a collective called The Strivers Row, and specifically one spoken word artist named Miles Hodges, and his, po- his poetry just really stuck with me. And it... Maybe it had to do with the fact that he was really handsome as well.
1: You, know, really <laughs> you connect connect to more <laughs> aesthetically, but to, yeah, more to attractive people.
0: <laughs> just really, he's the one that like launched my whole career. Really, <laughs> but yeah, he's still doing really great work. Like he writes. I think he did like um, uh, a project with Rikers Island where he did poetry workshops in the prison, mm. and just so just those stories like always um. Trying to. Get um, just trying to read voices. I guess like you hear that a lot of like trying to read people that you focus on like cu- people that you ha- you you wouldn't hear in normal life. Like in the classroom, there is a very specific kind of artist that's mm. talked about. Like we would do Gwen Harwood and and stuff like that. Oh my, God, I did that too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you did Gwen Harwood as well. Yeah, just roll my mm. eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just felt like there was this whole tradition of of literature that wasn't being studied Mm. in school that I I thought was just as important. Um, And so I think Miles Hodges, one of his biggest inspirations was James Baldwin, and it's because of him that I looked into James Baldwin and I read a lot of Baldwin's books and his role in the civil rights movement and stuff. And that's what got me thinking about writing seriously. Because before that, I thought about books and I didn't really feel like they... I didn't, like, the author always seemed faceless to me and anonymous, and I didn't really think about who, like, put those words to the page. But with Baldwin, I knew that it was some someone like, and even though he'd been, like, long dead since when I started reading, it felt like he was still living in our world and seeing things and wanting to change the structure mm. of our reality and stuff.
1: And the first draft of Coconut Children was completed as part of a writing program at Sydney Story Mm. Factory which is amazing because Sydney Story Factory really is creating a pathway for so many incredible young people Mm. of colour with so many complex racial identities and backgrounds and histories they're creating a pathway for Mm. all of these kids to have their voices heard how did this program change the way you saw writing
0: I think uh at the beginning when I was writing I was very much like thinking a lot about like comparing the it was really black and white in my head at the time when I started writing because I was just thinking about Asian people in relation to white people and how different our experiences were and I think that had a lot to do also with the films I was watching I think I wrote about this recently when I was just watching films and (coughs) seeing black people and white people in the same story and the characters that were written for white and black people and how they're always like, it's like they're eternally in contrast. And it seems like white people and black people in those kinds of stories were just locked in their race. And it seemed like black people were only as black. They were only black in relation to white people. So their blackness was rooted in Mm. someone else's whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of my writing The Coconut Children, that's the way I saw the world as well. Like my racial identity being informed by someone's lack of identity. Um, But then because of the writing program and because the tutors were really, there was a Allison who was a volunteer and she was an old white woman that was like mentored me for like like two years and she's still like one of my best friends. Mm. And Bilal is Lebanese and he grew up he went to, I went to be around girls and he went to be around boys. So that was, that was very cool. And yeah. then Richard was also, um, he was the storyteller in chief and he was a white man. And it just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't talk anymore about, well, I could, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in the Asian experience juxtaposed against the white experience anymore and the inequalities in between. I was more, yeah, I just wanted to focus in on what it meant to grow up in Cabra in the 90s Mm. and I think yeah at the beginning I was writing a lot of white characters that were really mean and Asian characters that were very much victims and it yeah I'm glad it changed.
1: Yeah that um, speaks really tremendously as well to how the content we consume is conditioning us to see our own racial identity the way white people want us to see it. Hmm. With a with a white lens, it always has to be kind of in permission to to them Mm-mm-mm. to and we're still kind of the other in our own stories. Yeah, and we're the
0: other in our own stories. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah,
1: and so it's really, really profound when we can get to a state, especially yourself as well at such a young age, to come to this like self-realization about how you can reclaim your narrative and strip all of that conditioning back, which is, like, really deadly. Like, I think it took me years to get to this kind of point. So to create something like The Coconut Children is really, really exciting. Thank you. But yeah, we're going to talk... I'm sorry, I'm just, like, proper amazed by you. So throughout your experience, or throughout your writing process, I should say, what were some challenges you've experienced with, like, getting The Coconut Children on the page?
0: Hmm... Um there are so many but I think there have been so cuz I I know I wrote the first draft of The Coconut Children when I was like in year 11 so when I was 17 but it's been an ongoing thing as well so I'm 19 now and I've just recently stopped like for a month now or two what month are we in? March. So I've, started, <laughs> <laughs> I've stopped working on it for like five months now. But since um, the beginning of 2017, I've been working on it nonstop. So it's just so much rewriting and having to um, go back to the first draft and see what I'd written was just like grueling. Oh, yeah. And just having to rewrite everything. But it did, yeah, it was just ugh. One one um, scene in particular I remember having a lot of trouble with Is like making white people, especially. um, This is one particular scene where Vince, the protagonist, is in a scripture lesson, and um, this priest comes in to give to give the lecture. And I was I just made him into like a caricature, and in some to to a certain extent, that was the point. Like I did want to make it ridiculous, like the the ideas that he was propagating and the hatred that was in like his soul but to another extent I wanted him to be human yeah and so it's really hard especially when you have a novel and there are so many characters and that that particular character scene was only like two or three pages to really flesh them out so I don't I, I still don't think I did that well so I think it's just and like honestly the book as a whole I've been asked quite a bit as well if, like, how much of the book is autobiographical. And I think, and I've never been good at answering it, but I think as time goes on, I'll just get worse and worse at answering it because I feel such a distance, not only between the characters that are in the story, but who I was when I wrote it. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it changes changes a lot, doesn't Mm. it? Like, I know that throughout my own writing process, I can get really overwhelmed and angered at the content because some Mm. part of it is also your own... Lived experience mm. and it can manifest manifest itself onto the page unknowingly, yeah. but it also speaking to who you were at that time and what you were going through. So, mm. did you kind of experience any of that kind of anger and frustration in yeah. your writing?
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole time, because <laughs> <laughs> I would write a lot of it when like, um, the protagonist has a lot of problems at home. And just a lot of family tensions. I remember, like, staying up late and just, like, crying because having fights at home. Well, not fights, just getting yelled at mm. home. <laughs> and then just, like, s- staying up late in order to collect, like, my thoughts and, yeah, trying to fictionalize it so it doesn't hurt so much because mm. you don't have, like... There are things that you want to say to people in your life sometimes that you could never say. And then to put it in a book was the only thing that I could do Mm so a lot of the moments were yeah was me recounting stuff that had happened at home and trying to wrap my head around how I still love these people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to rationalise yeah, <laughs> yeah. it all, from a into
1: perspective, mm.
0: yeah. Trying to be like the uh, narrator of your own life yeah. was a big thing. See,
1: this is why writers are the most emotionally intelligent people. No, I <laughs> Constantly trying to be <laughs> self-aware. Mm. Yeah. I guess so, <laughs> So what would be your advice to young people of colour that are struggling to kind of understand their own cultural identity and family history? A big question.
0: Um, I don't know. I don't have much advice cuz I feel like I'm still going through it a lot of the time. Like I think navigating what it means to be like all these layers of our identity, it never gets easier to understand like why certain parts of our identity make us feel certain ways in like just even walking here today in Alexandria. Um and being in the city always makes me feel uncomfortable. And it never stops. Like just maybe f- advice would be that just know that when you're in your room and you're writing on your own is when you'll feel most free, and that um, taking it to the next step by taking it to publishers and stuff, you'll I feel like in today's um publishing culture, you're you feel like an ornament a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. and it's even when people are interested in your story it feels like they're interested most in the labels that they can attach to your story. So I feel like not getting bogged down by that because that can make you really depressed. You can feel like you wrote this whole book, like 300 pages, and then for people to read it in a certain way, and you can't control that, Yeah. you know? So, yeah, just thinking about how you can't control it and just... Oh, uh, actually, the main thing that really helped me is... um. Uh, building a relationship with one particular character in your story. Like just really feeling like you care, just caring for them a lot, caring about what will happen to them. If you care about them, then the reader will care about them too. And I think it will show in your writing. Oh,
1: that's nice. Yeah. We just got a text in from 0409 945 945 from Jake the snake. Um, (laughs) Deadly name there, brother. He said hugely powerful stuff, reclaiming your own narrative. So just moving on to our final question. We ask this to all of our guests, and that's Vivian Pham. When did you realise there was power in your race? In my race? I feel like the first time I
0: realised there was power in my race was when I was walking in around Cabramatta and just noticing the, like, boys that had, school boys that had, like, jigged from Jig School and they were just walking around, like swaggering around. And they just looked, they were Asian like me. And at that time, I think I remember being really self-conscious about my race. And they just seemed, like a lot of them I think had mullets and stuff. So they looked really funny. <laughs> they looked funny to me. But there was just such a huge sense of pride in them. And I always, I still think, I thought about them and I thought about, and I think that's when I wanted to write a character like Vince. Mm. Like someone that just has so much pride in themselves and they don't really see their culture as baggage like i had for a lot of the time like they didn't see it as something that separated them from other people it was just a natural it was just the skin that they were in i think um yeah that's the first time i realized there was power
1: oh that's beautiful thank you so much for sharing that it's a big question that we ask our guests Mm. and a lot of them are always kind of like ah Shit. But really, thank you so much for sharing that. Vivian Fan's debut novel, The Coconut Children, is available now at all good bookstores. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.